This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon first bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Nourish, made by Functional Formularies. Moms are saying that their kids are thriving on Nourish and that it's the best decision that they've made when it comes to their child's nutrition. Not only is this 2B baby formula nutritionally complete without having any added sugar or synthetic ingredients, it's real food. Mamas love the fact that it's organic and made with whole food, plant-based ingredients and are grateful to be able to have Nourish to feed their children. Make sure that you ask your child's pediatrician today about Nourish and give that baby the food they need to survive and thrive. Learn more at functionalformularies.com or find them on Facebook at Functional Formularies or on Instagram at Functional Formularies. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding 
best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional fed, and for our fellow chic geeks out there, the fun category too. Today, we are covering all things genetic disorders and the resulting and or concomitant oropharyngeal dysphagia and or the feeding aversions and difficulties. Okay, let's be honest. Science is progressing and we are diagnosing rarer and rarer genetic syndromes each year. Not quite sure rarer is a real word, but it is a Michelle, so we're going to go with it. (laughs) But where does that leave us as a clinician? How are we supposed to possibly keep up with the best practice in current research when there are so many genetic syndromes that have a low prevalence, but we still want to offer the highest quality services that we can to our patients? Well, that's why Erin and I put our heads together and came up with today's episode. We wanted an evidence-based resource to go back to ourselves where we stockpiled info on some conditions that we see on a pretty common basis to those that you may only see once or twice a year and to those that may only pop up once in your professional career. Now, let me be perfectly clear. We are by no means geneticists. Heavens, I can hardly say some of these multisyllabic words and they're very complicated, but that's okay. Where does that leave us? For me, it's, it's to make a referral. So I am supposed to pick up the phone. Why? We see kiddos one to two times a week, whereas our pediatricians, they probably only see them, what, once every so many months so that they can get their shots or if they have to go in for a cootie. We get to know our children and their natural environments are in a clinic. We get to know their strengths and their weaknesses. And we get to know them on a more individual basis and more personally than most of their pediatricians. So pick up that phone and make the request to obtain that genetic consult. Because often what we find is that once a diagnosis is made, well, then the real caring and healing can begin, right? All right, Erin, so what are you thinking? Also, did you have a happy St. Patrick's Day? It was good. I mean, my name's Erin, so... <laughs> it's a thing. It's Yes, I went back to Philadelphia to visit a bunch of my friends from school for Erin Express. So, like, you know. It's, okay, so is that, like, a pun on your name, or is that, like, literally, like, a thing there in Philadelphia? It's a thing in Philadelphia, but Erin means Ireland and Gaelic. Okay, so this is, like, your holiday, and this is my personal yeah. holiday, af- favorite holiday after Christmas. Even though I'm only, like, 10% Irish, maybe. That's enough. That's a, that's enough for a My mom's last name was Dwyer, so that's, <laughs> that's pretty Irish. Yeah, but you went from that to a really Italian. Asano. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's that's a mouthful. Yeah, that was that was an interesting conversation when she told her parents that she was going to marry a full time. Yeah, 
I, I could imagine that going over to an Irish daddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got enough Irish to muddy the Cherokee waters there. So, um, yeah. Fun fact. I'm hoping everybody else out there had a safe, happy, green St. Patrick's Day, too. So, okay. I digress. Moving on. All right. We're going to jump right into it. Are you ready? Yeah. Let me, let's just nerd out. Okay. Game on. Okay. Um, so one of the first conditions that popped up when we were talking about this episode is discussing some of the common feeding and dysphagia concerns that are little ones with Down syndrome and 22Q 11.2 deletion. Okay. All right. So let's start with Down syndrome. Um, first and foremost, because it's incredibly near and dear to my heart. Also, anybody out there that hasn't heard it yet, go back and check out um, the episode with Miss um, Nicole. Um, not just because she's my adorable baby brother's um, amazing girlfriend, and he better not mess it up, but also uh, because they off they're doing so much advocacy work and. Y'all be sure to check out their website. One of my favorite resources is NDSS.org, the National Down Syndrome Society.org. They have some of the most cutting edge research on um, best practice treatments and diagnosis for Down syndrome. Okay, so first and foremost, it is not Down's syndrome. It's Down syndrome. That's like such a pet peeve. Mm-hmm. And y'all, people first language, because I see, I have actually had a mom tell me, thank you for talking about my child first and her Down syndrome second. And I was like, well, obviously. Yeah. But that was, um, that kind of struck me as odd. All right. So there are, um, let's go through the prevalence. Um, About one in 700 babies is born every year in the United States with Down syndrome. So that's about 6,000 little ones a year. Mm -hmm. And this one was really interesting. And it's straight from the National Down Syndrome Society website. I'm going to read it so that way I don't mess it up. Instance of births of children with Down syndromes increases with the age of the mother. But due to higher fertility rates in younger women, 80% of children with Down syndrome are born to women under the age of 35 is kind of interesting because we think of that being a advanced mm-hmm. and I am of that age advanced um they call it they call it a geriatric pregnancy. yeah I can't even put the words out there I don't know who, why that is the term they use uh, that's what they call it well you know when you're in your mid-30s you're not a geriatric individual but okay there it is all right moving on all the other mid-30 year old moms in the room are like mm-hmm. all right But there's one thing that should actually be covered. We are all aware that trisomy 21, also March 21st is coming up. Y'all wear your mismatched Mm -hmm. socks on National Down Syndrome Day. Um, But trisomy 21 uh, accounts for 95% of the cases where there's a complete um, reduplication of the 21st chromosome. However, There's also the translocation, translocation for about 4% and mosaic for about 1%. And what I have found is if you have a child that has a mosaic or translocation, they have a, um, they have less cognitive impairments and less physical impairments than their peers with a complete uh, reduplication. So just to kind of put that out there. Um, all right, let me, you hear the papers rattling. All right, now my nerdy quotes are on the ground. 
right, so what does that actually look like for our children with Down syndrome? When I give my big long lecture, um, I rattle off. There are certain things that I assume when I'm treating a child with Down syndrome that um, I will make the assumption until I have data to prove otherwise. First and foremost, I always consume a congenital heart defect. Those of us that work in the home health world, how often do you actually have access to the records? Hmm. <laughs> Not often. Not often. This is very true. Even if we ask our counterparts, the service coordinators and or early interventionists to provide us with the records, a lot of them are very young and wet behind the ears and they're not comfortable asking mm -hmm. physicians for them. Um, so I assume a congenital heart defect, specifically a persistent ductus arteriosus or patent ductus arteriosus. Y'all, that's a fancy word for a PDA, which is a fancy word for a hole in the heart. And the reason um, I assume that is because if they have that, they are going to have a hard time um, oxygenating their blood mm -hmm. and they tend to burn calories, big, bad, ugly burn calories. Um, Worst case, um, it can turn into um, uh, chronic fluid around the heart, congestive heart failure. If you've got a baby that you're treating and they're currently taking Lasix, which is a diuretic to get extra fluid off, y'all need to be in constant vigilant contact with that pediatrician. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with All right, so congenital heart defect, number one. Number two, I assume until I am told otherwise that they have an increased risk for hypothyroidism. Um, hypothyroidism, typically one of the big red flags for that is um, uh, constipation. Mm -hmm. So do they have constipation brought on by the hypotonia, delayed gastric emptying, um, delayed GI motility, or do they have constipation because of the hypothyroidism? Um, I assume hypotonia. We know our babies there have low tone. Y'all, that's not just low tone of like gross motor extremities that impacts everything. If you have low tone to the women in the room that have given birth <laughs> after you give birth, how comfortable is it to go poo? It's not because it feels like all of your organs are just flopping around down there. Right. I mean, then God forbid you had a tear. <laughs> Flopping's a nice, that's a nice word. Yeah, there's flopping. I'm just, um, you, you, you have no children yet, friend, wait. <laughs> and then the sneeze be, which, okay. But it really is that hard to contract mm -hmm. to actually move things through your system. Well, low tone is, was very confusing. It's just a, when you're not an OT or PT, it's mm -hmm. a confusing concept. And I had an OT explain it to me in a way of like tone and strength are two very different things. Tone okay. is kind of like the spectrum mm -hmm. almost. And I'm not explaining it in the best way that she explained it, but like it's what your muscles are more likely to do, but you can always strengthen muscles, but it never really going to exceed that. Yeah. And she did norm. explain it much better than that, but cause it still is a very confusing, it's just difficult to grasp, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the way she it's yeah. And then when they're babies too, I think like when you get a newborn tone is much more important because they don't really don't have that much strength at all. So the yes. tone really, really affects their feeding. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, remind me to come back to breastfeeding with okay. babies that have Down syndrome. Please don't let me forget that because we're going to squirrel. But tone is crux, all right, especially when it comes to latching. 
If you have low tone Mm -hmm. and it affects everything, your ability to latch onto a bottle or breast is compromised. So that's why a lot of these babies need, um, uh, okay. So in your babies that are breastfed, there's a hand position called the dancer's pose. Okay. Which is really interesting because it's the same thing that I refer to as the claw where you hold cheeks bilaterally and you apply some mandibular pressure. All right. But in the, that just looks like did you ever watch the episode of friends where Phoebe tries to teach Joey how to play the guitar and she names it after how your hand looks. <laughs> I don't know why that just made me think of it. And to all the, anyone that watches friends, I can call every episode, but watching you do that, you're like, it looks like a claw. This is what you do. Oh my God. If I didn't look so rough, I'd be like, take my picture. But like, we're skipping that tonight. We had, we had soccer practice today, folks. I look like not the cool soccer mom. I look like the soccer mom that like dragged everybody in at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. All right. But, but that's what it is. It's the claw, but that pose, that position actually helps, um, them create a better latch because it, um, empties out the, uh, or it, limits or inhibits the amount of empty space in the mouth so that they can just focus on creating that negative air pressure to create a better suck. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. These babies are going to have an increased likelihood for GERD because they have the low tone that goes all the way through, which compromises um, their LES, the lower esophageal sphincter. It's not going to cinch off. So a lot of these babies that most of their typically developing peers will just have a little bit of spit up. They're going to lose a lot of calories and have a hard time meeting their caloric metabolic uptake because they have like massive emesis, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not probably failure to thrive as it is, you know, we just have really badass reflux. Um, They're going to have delayed gastric emptying and delayed GI motility. So they're going to feel satiated and they're going to feel fuller longer than their typically developing peers because low tone, it doesn't go out and, or what about, is it hypothyroidism? Mm -hmm. Then you increase likelihood for Hirschsprung's disease, which is where the last two to 5% of the small, I'm sorry, large intestines is not innervated to actually move the poo through. Okay. But they're also burning more calories likely because of all the heart Heart. stuff going on. And then we wonder why they all have a failure to thrive diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Also, this is a huge personal pet peeve. Children that have Down syndrome have their very own growth curve. Right. Okay. So, folks, you need to find out what growth curve the pediatrician is charting that child on. Because what I have found is that, unfortunately, our children that are serviced in more rural locations are not being charted on the correct growth curve. They're being charted on the typically developing who um, World Health Organization growth mm-hmm. curve. Um, all right, squirrel, back to the breastfeeding. Sorry, your head nod made me think of the breastfeeding one. Okay, um, there is, if you get on Healthy Children's and Families website, hold on, I'm butchering that one. Um, let me jump to it really quick. It is um, my favorite lactation class, not just because I just went to a lactation class and I'm hoping to God that I pass that board exam to anybody out there that has done that. I have girl crush on you because that kicked my butt two weeks ago. Um, But they have a significant amount of resources available on this lovely website. Healthy Children Product 
um, Project and Corporate Center for Breastfeeding. Um, they actually have resources available and links um, available specifically to breastfeeding children with Down syndrome and mm-hmm. strategies to actually make sure like if they need like an assistance, like which it's like a tiny little valving system that lays adjacent to the mother's um, nipple and it just adds extra calories. Sometimes it's do a cow coming through. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a specialized formula. Sometimes it's actually pumped milk. So they're just kind of getting more milk at the same time. Um, that's all fantastic. Okay. So Add in the fact that these babies are more likely to have laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, a laryngeal cleft, mm-hmm. a small laryngeal cleft. You got a baby on your caseload that has Down syndrome, that has had laryngomalacia um, suspect because of a strider, or they've never actually had a scope put down, but that they keep coming back as aspirating only on thin liquids. Mm-hmm. For the love of Pete, get a second opinion from a really good skilled ENT. Get them to put a scope down there because you're going to find a thing. Typically, developing children don't just aspirate thin liquids only. I cannot stress that enough. It makes me want to pull my hair out. That's not typically developing. Most likely, you're looking at a cleft or you're looking at laryngomalacia or trachomalacia. That in the arrow portion of the digestive tract, they probably have hypertrophy of the adenoids and or um, narrowing of the nasal turbinates. Uh, all of that results in... Um, open mouth posture for breath support because they're trying to breathe. One thing leads to another and the bada boom, bada bing. Doesn't Joey say that from friends? Bada boom, bada bing. Um, no. No? Who says that? <laughs> Who says that? Who says bada boom, bada bing? Somebody out there message me. But then you end up with... Um, it's bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing. Is bada that what he says? Oh, I don't know. It'll come to us. It's an Italian dude. I know. I know it's an Italian guy. <laughs> Oh my gosh, if it's like Frank Sinatra or something like that, like I'm going to be like... I just know really... I'm a big podcast listener and so like I yell when I listen so someone's probably yelling. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, it's a thing. Facebook messages. Okay, but when that actually happens, these babies end up having a hard time closing their mouths to chew. So then as the clinician, we're like, oh, they have anterior spillage of the bolus when it's like period or mech chop food. No, it's not anterior spillage of the bolus. I mean, it is, but that's driven by the fact that one, they're vertical chewing to mouth breathe. And well, no, the whole thing, they're vertical chewing up down motion to mouth breathe and then breathing around that bolus. Mm -hmm. Which is like, I have a patient who doesn't have Down syndrome, but she's like, so congested at baseline and we like haven't been able to figure out why she's congested. Like I've sent her to allergists. We've like sent her to ENT. I just, you know, we think there may have been um, a sinus infection that went untreated for a really long time, but Mm -hmm. she's still so congested and it's frustrating for me because I'm like on top of her reduced head control. If she can't breathe, like that's the main reason why we're having these difficulties because she can't breathe the chew through her nose. You mean she can't breathe? Yeah, Na- yeah. She can breathe. She doesn't. Yeah, but she, she just can't, can't breathe, breathe through, her, through nose. her nose. And so then when we're like trying to progress her solids, super difficult because she like has to open her mouth a lot to breathe. And then when we're working on like you know her liquids because she does have a history of aspiration, it's very difficult because she can't breathe through her nose and then we have to pace, but she doesn't self-regulate to pace. So she's fighting to breathe. It's so, I think people get frustrated with us because I'm like, we need to figure out 
what's going on because I can't fix that. But respiratory nope. comes first. So like with our kids with Down syndrome, I mean, we have to know that about them, but then also see if you can get them to ENT because, you know, they can get some, their adenoids removed or clean up the air portion that, of the air digestive tract. That can help. Yes. Okay. So remember folks, we are built for respiration first, deglutition second. Or also what you taught me, a child should not have bags under their eyes. Yes. So like, I forgot. I let's just, if you see a kid that has bags under their eyes, like something's wrong, whether they can't breathe while they're sleeping. And if they're not getting good sleep, their brain isn't developing the way it should be. They're going to have behavioral problems because they're exhausted. Like I'm a, not a nice human when I haven't had sleep. <laughs> and so like, I have no idea what you're talking it just, about. <laughs> that was something that like, and I've, I'll mention it to people. I'll be like, did you see the bags in their eyes? And they're like, I, I didn't even notice. I was like, they, they should not have bags. Like that's, yeah. there are little things that, and squirrel again. But I remember when I was your student and you, um, <laughs> we were with a family that we were treating one of the siblings and they had, it was, um, the baby was there and you were like, asked mom, like, can I demonstrate on your child? Cause she has such a symmetrical face. And you were like showing me how you look at a child and there's your face should be symmetrical and there's certain lines that you look for. Mm -hmm. And when a child's face isn't symmetrical, that's a red flag for something genetic, which I had mm -hmm. never like. And so now I see kids all the time. I'm like, I said something to Anon. I mentioned this the other day. I was like, did you see that? Like they're not super symmetrical. And she's like, what? And I was like, okay, let me, <laughs> let, let me, me show you. <laughs> but if you, but okay. that was so interesting. Like the tips of your ears should line up with like the, your iris. Okay. I what what she's talking about. Um, we were going to do it at the end, but we'll do it now. Um, I call it the Fibonacci sequence of beauty. Okay. Oh, so I, I got, I got to, no, it's, we, we got to do it now because it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll come back to all the other ones. Um, all right, so a million years ago, I minored in art history because I'm nuts and amongst a bunch of other stuff. And so um, my art history professor talked about the Fibonacci sequence of beauty, which was really funny because that was the one topic I was good at in math because I found it, the symmetry gorgeous. The Fibonacci sequence is a naturally occurring pattern. You see it in um, the Nautilus shell. You see it in um, the programming of the sunflower seeds when they're on a sunflower. Uh -huh. I think that's amazing. Okay. So everybody, as long as you're not driving, grab a pencil or a pen. Um, I have a yellow highlighter. Wait, you have to take a picture of this. This is fantastic. Okay. okay. So I have my little yellow highlighter and you are going to hold the highlighter um, at the tips of your ears. All right. Or whatever object you have. When you have a highlighter or a pencil right there, the highlighter should be level with your iris. Ready? Cheese. Okay. All right. If your iris is not level with the tips of your ears, if your ears are off downward slanting, that's concerning. All right. So the next one, um, you want to take the highlighter, put it at the inner corner of your eye, and it should come down to the outer corner of your lip. Okay. Is that on show? Wait, we're going to do another one. Okay. Forgive my we'll, busted, we'll tired look. We'll put it look. On, our, on the Instagram, so don't worry. All right, cool. All right, so if you are asymmetrical, if those variables are off, also if you have a dimple or a divot 
on the um, inner portion of your ear, just like that little, do you remember what this is called? It's not my penna. What is that? Gosh. Oh my gosh. We're having a brain fart at the end of the day. I also took audiology. I know I do, and I don't remember it. All right. But if you have a divot on that tiny little piece of skin, somebody is yelling this on the, on the most inner portion of your ear, that's a red flag. If you have an ear tag, it's called an ear pit. Or if you have an ear tag, an extra piece of skin, or if your earlobe has a secondary fold from where it attaches to your cheek, all of those are red flags just from the face alone for a genetic condition. We're not even getting into like hands and feet and webs, and um, but those factors right there, eyes are too far apart, eyes are too close together. All of those are red flags. Do yourself a favor and get that baby to a geneticist. Also, Miss Erin, do Miss Michelle a favor and like Photoshop that photo. <laughs> okay, maybe don't really find some new filter. Okay, yeah, filter it up, baby. Okay, all right. So I think that's um, the biggest concern with um, our babies that have Down syndrome is low tone to build up. Um, the pressure necessary to strip a nipple, whether it be bottle or breast, um, open mouth posturing with um, mastication, um, low tone to manipulate the bolus side to side. As you have said numerous times, if you can't cross body um, or midline with your arms for ghost motor, you're not going to do a fine motor for low tone. Um, we've talked about um, all the different um, PO aversions or not PO aversions, um, uh, PO intake difficulties based on laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if they feel full, they will not want to eat. So always go back to GI tract with these babies. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we spent the first 20 minutes on that one alone, but we're going to see that one the most. Yeah, so that's important. That's an important one. Okay. So 22Q11.2 deletion. Y'all goes by three names. Originally, it was velocardiofacial syndrome and DeGeorge's anomaly, but it turns out that they are both the same thing. However, um, that one thing is called 22Q11.2 deletion. It was just... Um, a spectrum? It was like a spectrum, yes. Individuals that have DeGeorge's anomaly tend to have more severe and pronounced um, uh, presentations. I think I think, can you double check me? But I think that one um, has a prevalence of like eight to 10,000. 22, um, 22Q, well, all of the above. Um, and then um, velocardiofacial syndrome, those children tend to be diagnosed later. Um, when I was an SLPA-ish in Virginia Public Schools a gabillion years ago, I had a little girl on my caseload and I took my craniofacial class and I was like, oh, this little girl is um, soft, breathy vocal quality and she's got a lot of nasal emissions and she's got um, spacing of her eyes and she's really, really tiny for her age. Maybe she has it. And I didn't know that at that time I wasn't allowed to ask questions to the parents, but um, mom listened to my questions, immediately took her to a pediatrician, immediately got the fish test on the genetic testing and baby girl had velocardiofacial syndrome, which explained why she was so small when they did that. Then they found the hole in her heart. She had had a murmur, but she had an older pediatrician who was listening through his stethoscope and could not hear it 
because he had lost fundamental frequencies. Y'all heed those words. We are relying on aging physicians to hear through a stethoscope. I mean, and it may not be just an aging physician. I mean, there's a lot of times where you have younger physicians Mm -hmm. that have had hearing loss because they've gone to one too many concerts and or fabulous gentlemen like my husband who can't hear out of his right ear, courtesy of Army. Mm -hmm. And he's a great shot, but don't sit on the right side of him when we are out to dinner because he can't hear you. All right. Do you have the prevalence on it? One in 4,000. One in 4,000. Okay. All right. I doubled it. I said one in eight to 10. Okay. So one in 4,000. But they so- say that it may be um, underdiagnosed for like the kids that are more mild. Yes. Okay. So with these kiddos, um, you have to worry about them being small in stature. Why? Because they're cardiac conditions. Um, holes and hearts, yes. But the most common cardiac condition is tetralogy de fillet, a tetralogy of fillet. Um, it's a major valving issue, but basically what it boils down to is extremities turn blue. And we think as the speech pathologist that they're going apneic on a bottle. They're not actually going apneic on the bottle. It's that they're working so hard that they're not um, oxygenating their bloods. The worst part is the babies have to hit like a certain weight before they can even be considered viable for the surgery, which sucks because normally they're a couple months old at that time. So they're sent home And if you're the home health therapist and you have a child and you're watching them go blue, if they start going blue more frequently, then you need to make sure that you are communicating that with their medical team Mm -hmm. because that's a red flag for all the things. Okay. Also. And it's scary. Yeah. Horribly scary. I mean, these are the kind of kids that, I mean, super green folks or somebody who is new to the world of pediatric feeding, I would not recommend that you pick up a cardiac baby. Mm -hmm. Um, There's too many what ifs. Yeah. Unless you have a really, really, really strong support system and a supervisor who is very well versed. Mm -hmm. But these are things that, especially when you're new to this, we want you set for success to build up your confidence and build up your clinical skill set. We don't need y'all coming home, yeah. With worry on your heart. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Okay. So, um, squirrel. I got really emotional there for a second because that hits home for a couple of people that I love. All right. So with PO intake for, um, 22Q11.2 deletion, my next thought is they tend to have a lot of, um, um, submucous clefts. And with that submucous cleft, you're going to have a hard time building up intraoral pressure on a bottle. Uh, And sometimes these are the kids that um, the family reports, they do really well on a fast flow, Mm -hmm. but they're not actually sucking. (laughs) You go into that one, friend. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this just happened from Miss Erin's sweet world. Think about this kid, okay, they do really like this kid that we just made up that has 22Q11.2. Um, but yeah, okay, they do really well on a fast flow. But with with that, they don't have that control because they're not sucking. So that pattern of suck, swallow, breathe is like very compromised. And a child that already is probably going to have heart condition gonna have that's gonna affect the respiratory portion they don't and just it's need just it kind dumping. of a mess like that like those are the kids that you take the ball out and they're like <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you're mm-hmm. like this is I mean that's a sign 
that increases the risk of aspiration. Yes. In general, the fact that they're having increased work of breathing mm-hmm. and rapid fire, their cardiac rate, mm-hmm. their heart so it's rate. All, and some mucus cleft is difficult too, because it's, that's really hard to diagnose because even like a good oral, like you're not going to, most of the time you're not going to see it. And I know in, I had a friend that had a patient in our clinic at school that it was kind of um, hypernasal. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just something was off. And then she gave her mom a questionnaire and it was like, has your kid ever had like food come out of his nose? Yes. Has your kid ever like all these things that and the mom was just felt so horrible. She's like, I have no idea, but like this child was probably eight or nine, mm-hmm. like, and it had just never, so not with this, but a sub mucus cleft in general is hard to diagnose. Yes. And, and they're going to have nasal emissions. They're going, they're not, they're going to struggle to build up the necessary enteroral pressure to be a successful breast and bottle feeder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like that, that's just it. And we have a really good VPI um, conversation with Melissa Montiel um, from October, November yeah. of last year. I think we did an episode mm-hmm. with her, but y'all, this is, um, in some kids, it's mild. It may not as impact. In other kids, it's more pronounced, and you need to follow through. The worst is when they cough or they have food, like they have food in their mouth, and they start coughing. If it starts like projecting out of their nose, yeah, that's a huge red flag. Um, now, the tricky part with the submucous cleft is what can be done. Can it be addressed by um, exercises? Um, or does it have to be addressed by um, surgical intervention? Um, uh, I don't know. I do not make that decision. What I tend to do is recommend that they be seen if I suspect it by a skilled VPI clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. So um, 22Q11.2, did we cover all of it? I have had I have had a um, couple of kids that have had that. Some of them have required a G-tube because of the severity of um, their cardiac condition, and we were worried just about getting calories on. Um, So just as a heads up. Okay. All right. So. (laughs) Chewbacca came downstairs to tell us, everybody, hello, good evening. (laughs) Okay. Um, So moving on, there are two other conditions that – you have encountered with some regularity over the mm-hmm. years, Angelman syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome. Okay. Let me put my readers on. Okay. So Angelman, <laughs> Angelman syndrome. See if I put these on that picture would have looked cute because these are incredibly stylish, adorable. Um, okay. So Angelman syndrome. All right. This is the part that I told you about in the opening that I can't read the word. So here it is. Um, it's a deficiency of the E3 ubiquitin protein. Mm. Yeah, yeah. we're going to go with that. Um, And it impacts chromosome 15Q11 through Q13. Okay, so something on the 15th chromosome between Q11 and Q13. All right, I don't know what all those words mean, but I don't have to. I'm not the geneticist. It's my job to recognize, hey, I got a word here. All right. Angel men's did not 
get the name because, and this bothers me tremendously, um, because I had somebody say something very derogatory about a patient one time when I was out on the walk with a um, their um, personal care assistant. Um, and they go, oh, is that because, because, you know, the PCA had said he had angel meds in there. I'm like, oh, is that because he looks like an angel? No, it was actually the physician that, I mean, that's it just Usually. struck me. Yeah, it was named after um, Dr. Harry Angelman. Um, 1965, he was an English physician who actually kind of honed in on what this is. Um, uh, it used to, the antiquated term that we've moved away from, um, was a happy puppet syndrome. We don't use that term either anymore, but I have had, um, I've had that referenced as well. So I'm just putting that out there that this is where we have moved in terminology. Okay. Now, um, most of these kiddos do end up having, um, when they're really, really young, um, brief periods of, um, uh, unexplained laughter and they always appear a very happy demeanor. Um, as they get older, they tend to be a little bit more aggressive, but I don't know if it's really aggression and, or just that they're, intellectually disabled kind of keeps them at a developmental um, level such that, I mean, I had a kiddo who was 15 that I worked with for a while, but he was also developmentally about that of a 15 month old. So he was impulsive Mm -hmm. like most 15 months old, but But he was bigger than I was. And one time he went to hug me when I was sitting next to him on the slide and he got so excited that he just bit the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Um, bless his little heart. The dad was so upset and I ended up biting my lip in the process of trying to get out of it. So I spent the rest of the session with an ice pack on my head and ice pack on my lip. But you know what? We finished out our therapy session and I was like, let's move on. Um, (laughs) die hard that I am. Okay. So, um, a lot of these kiddos, um, have a severe expressive language delay. Most of them are, um, unfortunately nonverbal. Um, they may get upwards of five to 10 words over the course of their lifetime. Um, I have had limited success with um, very simple speech generating devices. When I mean simple, I'm talking like from a field of four or from a field of eight. Um, But the field of eight did have only Mm -hmm. four images on it. The other four were whited out. Um, from a gross motor perspective, they have a lot of ataxic movements. If you're going to have ataxic movements, gross motor, you're most likely going to have them, excuse me, fine motor. But the big, bad, and ugly with these kiddos is that 80% of them are going to have a seizure disorder. And with that results in a whole host of other issues. Um, if you have a seizure disorder, some of the medications that you get put on can do as much damage in and of themselves because you can't tell one cranial nervous dish, it impacts the others. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the children that I have provided service to that had angel men, um, they all loved water, loved splashing around in water. A couple of them loved liquids so much that they would engage their gag reflex so that they could play in their emphasis, which it can set you up for a whole host of cavities mm-hmm. for chronic acid reflux. Um, that kind of component. Um, uh, 
they have a tendency to have the hypotonia, to have low tone, and with the low tone um, can cause constipation. So is the constipation caused by management of GERD because most of those medications cause GERD? Is the constipation caused by cranial nerve suppression from the various seizure medications, or is it caused by the low tone? I don't know, but I know that all of those contribute to a child not wanting to eat. And then if you, um, unfortunately, all of these children, because of their craniofacial structure, which is most likely dictated by a multitude of issues, one of them being most of them have, um, that I have worked with, have been snorers, and then they've ended up having to have like their adenoids removed, but that sets them up for that open mouth posture. With that open mouth posture, the longer you have an open mouth posture, it the worse it gets. So by the time they're... <sighs> three to five and older, the damage is done. They're open mouth breathers pretty much around the clock. And the babies have a tendency to drool because of the low tone and because cognitively right. that's where they are. Yeah. Um, and then we go in and we go to feed them. Mm-hmm. And that can be complicated. So for these kiddos, it's been, um, uh, a couple of the kiddos that I've worked with have required a feeding tube just because severed and it's like a spectrum, like right. all things. Um, if they were more involved then a feeding tube to meet their caloric metabolic needs was clinically indicated and we did pleasure feeding, mm-hmm. but you know, one of those kiddos, we also had shortened life expectancy because a whole host of other things, you know, um, the biggie here is unfortunately a lot of these kids get misdiagnosed and it takes several years to catch it because it doesn't, the chromosomal abnormality doesn't always show up the first get-go. Um, it can be, it, it, it's one of those things like I have a little kiddo on my caseload that um, was diagnosed with um, uh, 22Q11.2, um, 20, you know what I'm trying to say, folks. Um, even though um, his genetic like when they did the array, it didn't come back as president. He had every single other thing for velocardiofacial. So they went ahead and, you know, the Mm -hmm. geneticist clinically gave the diagnosis because we hit every single one. And they're like, keep coming back as science evolves. Um, We're going to find this. But for these kiddos, it's about safety. Because for my Angelman kiddos, with with our our kiddos that have Angelman, it's it's safety first. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Unfortunately, when they start down on that, um, for the self-injurious, the gagging, I'm worried so much about aspiration. Are they going to aspirate mm-hmm. their emesis? Um, and when their seizures are at their worst, and for some of these kids, they're really aggressive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are they even safe for PO then? Mm-hmm. So like with our adults, when we have that conversation for pleasure feeding, mm-hmm. Is it pleasurable for the parent? Right. Or it's different for kids because for yeah. some of them, food really isn't. No. And we forget that and it's then it can become more stressful. And I think the thing in this is about all the um, things we're going to talk about today. But the good news is with a lot of these, if you have the diagnosis, you have resources that that you can go to the physician and you can say, this is common with this syndrome. This is why I have concerns. This is the prevalence of, you know, 75% of kids with this syndrome usually have this. These are the things that I'm seeing. 
it also gives you basis points to talk to families and Mm -hmm. to understand that for a lot of these it's a spectrum, but you have to, and not to be negative, but you have to know like how much we can do because when is it no longer warranted? For right. Us? And not, not to be negative and not, not to, negative but there are some times where you have to think about their safety and you have to think about what's most important. And yes, for a lot of, you know, feeding and language and speech are really important, but for some of these kids, like uh, safety and other things are more important mm-hmm. for some points in their life. Like we need to focus on their nutrition and getting them to grow and getting them to be able to develop skills. And we, and so I think it's, it's great to have all this information and you have to sometimes take a step back and be like, even what's most important to this family right now, Yes, you know, if that makes sense, like we, we have to know, and this is something that I still struggle with. We have to know when the little one has plateaued, And when it's time for us to make our gracious exit Mm -hmm. and that sucks. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it like that. That sucks. Like when do we say, okay, Mm -hmm. this is as good as it's going to get for now. Let's go on hold and follow back up in three months and six months and nine months Mm -hmm. when, um, maybe after, I mean, I've had to put kids on holds, um, for hospitalizations or, you know, we've, you know, moved from palliative care to hospice, call me back if we get out of hospice and we go back to palliative care or, I mean, a whole Mm -hmm. host of issues, but we have to know when and where. Now you said resources, excuse me, it jogged my memory. Um, Check out Mm rarediseases.org and you can look for information on Angelman syndrome there as well as, um, uh, hold on, I got to put my readers back on, Um, (laughs) angelman.org. Um, angelman.org is the Angelman Syndrome Foundation. And um, that's a wonderful organization. And I've had a couple of moms absolutely love that as a family resource mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't feel alone. Or f- even Facebook. Like a lot yes. of, I've had kids that have really, really rare genetic disorders that don't have a name. It's just like this, del- you know, mm-hmm. deletion because there's so many. And I mean, that's when social media is really awesome because you have these families that are in different processes of either diagnosis or the grief cycle or mm-hmm. have good resources. You know, I mean, with some of these kids that have really rare stuff going on, there might be a doctor somewhere that is doing something really awesome or, you know, families sometimes travel. There's just a lot of things that you can get. Because if they find a specialist somewhere to travel to where, yes, absolutely. No, I'm, yep. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part, the information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker 
for 12 plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. Okay. All right. Um, we have 15 minutes left uh, to cover three more syndromes. So, whoop, whoop. okay. I'm going to move into Prater Willie. Okay. So, um, first and foremost, I want everybody to check out um, the um, pwcf.org, Prater Willie California Foundation. They have, I'm not a California girl. Um, also, hello to everybody in California that I have crossed path with, paths with over the years. I have absolutely adored, adored getting to know you. And to everybody out there who is in the Hawaii Elks, um, what is it, Hawaii, California Elks Association. I'm butchering that, y'all. But ladies, you put on one good show and I miss you dearly. So thank you. Okay, so Prater Willie Foundation. Um, and Prader-Willi syndrome. All right. It's an abnormality on the 15th chromosome. It's one in 15,000 live births for a prevalence. It impacts male and female equally and all races equally. Okay. It's rare, but um, according to pwcf.org, one of the 10 most common genetic conditions that's seen and caught in clinics. All right, so let me blow your mind and then, you know, follow it back up, okay? Um, all right, so when we think of Prader-Willi syndrome, we tend to think of a intellectually, an adult with an intellectual disability who has low tone and is morbidly obese, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, a lot of these children start off kind of sort of the opposite. Most of these babies, because of their low tone, there's a theme here with low tone, they tend to have um, failure to thrive. And then because they have a hard time uh, sustaining their sex swallow, uh, uh, resp- you know, sex swallow, breathe, I'm getting that all out of order, but you know what I mean? That because they have a hard time creating that pattern, um, they don't put on weight like they should. And then they have constipation issues. Um, All of that creates this kind of negative cycle where a lot of these babies actually struggle more to um, breastfeed. They're more successful in bottle feedings or like adaptive feeders, Mm -hmm. like um, my OSU favorite, um, Dr. Brown's. um, uh, Put the little blue circle in it, the the valve, the the one-way valve, uh, and that it really can change these kids' stars. Okay, so we start out low tone, failure to thrive, and they intend to have, um, you know, developmental delay. But yes, intellectual disability can range IQ of 40 to 100, and 100 is average, but their cause and effect and problem solving tends to not be um, fully developed. So even if we have an average IQ, the ability to stop oneself from, um, eating too extreme or recognizing, um, satiety, thank you. (laughs) 
um, that they really struggle with that. Okay. So the first stage they, they kind of call failure to thrive. The second stage of life they call hyperphagia. It can start in toddlerhood. When you go out to do your evals and you get out to a patient's house, um, a red flag hallmark when you get out to their house lock is on the fridge. lock on the fridge, lock on the cabinets, lock on pantries. Because if they don't, the kids will wake up and they will eat themselves to the point of engorgement and then they vomit and they'll just turn around and do it right back mm-hmm. again. Um, they just have no no concept of this. Yeah. Um, and the hypothalamus, like that's the part of their brain that they just, it's not fully yep. developed in that understanding. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And and um, they also have gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying or delayed GI motility. So those in combinations, I mean, you are backed up, uh-huh. slow moving and incredibly starving feeling all the time. And then the inability to regulate, you've created the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So what is our job? Um, and everybody's like, Oh God. <laughs> okay. Um, first and foremost, um, I, um, humbly suggest that, um, we need to get in there and help them become successful eaters in the infant stage. And then as they progress into that second stage, we need to work with the rest of the medical team. It's not up to me to put in strategies to inhibit or limit the amount of PO they can take. And that's not my job. That's doctor. That's um, a behavioral therapist, a psychologist. That's their responsibility. My job is to make sure that what they do consume is safe. Okay. Now, isn't this the, um, didn't you know someone that had a condition with Prater Willie? We had in um, grad school in our neurodevelopmental Disorders class. Mm-hmm. Um, my professor, I can't remember if it was like her cousin or her someone mm-hmm. um, in her family. And we like, we talked to him via Skype. Awesome. And he was at, they have like um, some homes for when they're older. Because mm-hmm. um, being in that structure is mm-hmm. really good. Um, he was, had, it a, was it a system uniquely designed for individuals with Prater Willie? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it was in North Carolina. There's not a lot at all okay um and he had like very restricted interests like it was he loved pens that was his like favorite thing pens like writing pens or pens like lapel pens pen p-e-n-s okay Did all I right say it wrong? well it's a it just it, it, every once in a while the <laughs> yankee i'm like what you talking about here now a pen you're gonna write with or a pen you can put on your chest mm-hmm. also wow my southern so you're yank my <laughs> southern we made it work <laughs> okay but yeah so he i mean but pretty um, high cognitively, um, definitely like pragmatics a little, you know, Mm -hmm. um, he'd worked on that, but, Mm -hmm. but that was really interesting to get to talk to, to talk to him. Now see, there was, I have only come across it in the sense that we were chasing down the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but we were still at the tiny, like toddler age Mm -hmm. and something wasn't right. Excuse me. And what I did notice, they say on the Prater Willie Syndrome website, um, on their organization's website, that a lot of these children end up getting diagnosed with apraxia of speech. And I'm going to put it out there that this is most likely an acquired apraxia of speech due to um, various conditions and absence of cortical structures or misshapen right. or damaged cortical structures. Because again, I firmly do not believe in such a thing as childhood apraxia of speech. 
I think it's always um, cortical mm-hmm. in nature. Okay. <laughs> Looking at the clock. Girl, we got yeah, we seven got minutes and two more syndromes to go. So I'm going to flip the tables right. on you. Um, we have both worked with a couple little ones that have had wolf Hirschhorns. And y'all, I'm going to spell this. It's W-O-L-F hyphen Hirschhorn. H-I-R-S-C-H-O-R-N. So lay it on me about our little ones that have wolf Hirschhorn. Okay. So it's about one in 50,000 births. Mm -hmm. So pretty rare. Um, They call it um, the appearance they call it a Greek warrior helmet. I only say that because that's like every website characterizes it that way. So you have like a broad, flat nasal bridge um, and a really high forehead. Mm-hmm. I would suggest looking it up. Um, yes, it's it. it's a very distinct craniofacial pattern. Mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure of working with two little ones that have that, which is, I mean, clown, yeah. you know, it's a small neck of the woods here, but it is. Um, I'll, most of these children look like they could be twins mm-hmm. of each other. Oh yeah. Um, they have a short philtrum. So it's like their facial features are very distinct, like mm-hmm. micronathia, which is going to affect feeding. They mm-hmm. have a really small chin. Hard um, latch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you, most of them have microcephaly, really small head. Mm-hmm. Um, and they definitely have delayed growth and development. So a lot of these kids are really small. Um, they have a lot of problems feeding and gaining weight. So a lot of these kids end up with a failure to thrive diagnosis. And they have their very own unique Girl chart. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's important too is, you know, if, if they're really low on their growth chart, that's, that's a concern. But yeah. knowing that, you know, they're going to, they're going to be, a lot slower to gain weight. Than, mm-hmm. um, so I was going to say, um, um, Paul and Jennifer, the lovely couple that I work so close with, um, their daughter has a, um, a friend who has welfare shorns and oh, she's wow. in sixth grade and their daughter plays volleyball because she's very tall. Um, very, very tall for their age. And her best friend has both her horns and is very, very small for her age. Oh and her mom laughs and says, she says, you should see those two. They're like partners in crime and everything they do. But there's like almost two feet height and difference mm-hmm. between the two of them. Um, but that's very much um, their size and stature is that small. Mm-hmm. Um, it's well, and also it's a chromosomal deletion. So it's, it's random mm-hmm. when it happens. Um, their families tend to not be carriers. This is just a random, mm-hmm. for lack of a better phrase, roll of the dice. They, um, are more likely to have cleft palate. So that's definitely something mm-hmm. to, you know, it's called 4P deletion syndrome is another word for it. Okay. A big thing for these kids too. I think it's 90 to hundred percent have seizures. Yes. And, and the hardest part is their seizures are not consistent. Mm-hmm. You and I have both worked with a little one that has wolf horns. Um, and I have another little one that I work with. And like that one seizure will be a grandma. One seizure might be absent seizure. Se- mm-hmm. It could be brought on by febrile seizures. It could be tonic. It could be um, a tonic clonic. It could be myoclonic. Um, also check out epilepsyfoundation.org for beautiful descriptions. Okay. So what I have found 
Um, and I've actually consulted with some of our friends um, down in Charleston. A lot of these children do end up require um, end up requiring a feeding tube, unfortunately, because their um, seizure disorder and the medications um, can cause so much complications when they're infants that they, and then you add in that they have micronanthia and they have mm-hmm. a submucous cleft and then they have airway issues. Um, they struggle to create an effective seal on a bottle. Mm-hmm. And that description that Aaron did earlier of the <laughs> on the bottle afterwards, I'm sorry, I scared the dog. Um, <laughs> but that it's okay, mama, you're fine. <laughs> um, but that description um, is so accurate because they have a hard time pacing. Mm-hmm. Because it requires so much effort. Some of these kiddos also have a cortical vision impairment. And that can take time to diagnose. And when I mean developmentally delayed, I mean, I have a sweet little friend who just turned two. And we're just now functioning between that of a six and eight month old. Um, who is that Instagram, that guy that I love following? Special books for special folks? or Oh, Mm, hang on. He actually interviewed a lovely person um, a little while ago that had um, Wolf Hirschhorns. And in that video, um, he talked about how this particular young lady was, I believe, 10 or 14, and she was not talking. Um, and some of these children never learn, never have the ability to functionally communicate orally. Uh, I will find this. Hold on one second. Come on, Instagram. <laughs> well, they also, I mean. Special books by special kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all check this gentleman out. Special books by special kids. He's amazing. And he has an episode um, from February 21st um, where he interviews a little one that has Wolf Hirschhorns. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes, and her family. Okay, so what were you going to say? Well, they also, I mean, with low tone, with all the things that they have going mm-hmm. on, it's it's difficult for them. Mm-hmm. They also tend to have constipation. Yeah. Um, and um, for a lot of these children, we need to consider the formulas that are recommended to them because a lot of the formulas that are recommended the first time around are just sugar. And they do not actually necessarily um, meet the rest of their metabolic needs. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you're advocating for your families um, that they meet with a registered dietitian. Um, because I have found um, and witnessed firsthand where we got off of certain formulas and onto real foods. And then all of a sudden, a whole host of our GERD and constipation issues just poof, mm-hmm. went away. Um, and... Yes, some of these children do end up getting an off of the feeding tube. And as their gross motor and fine motor skill set improves and their tone, um, they learn to roll over and sit up and independently bring their hands to their mouth. Their progression with PO improves as well. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I guess it's, I wouldn't know what you call it a pet peeve. Probably bigger than a pet peeve. But like, so walks <laughs> with, with these kids that have these gross motor and fine motor deficits, you are not a magician. Like you can't go in and just fix their oral motor skills. And when 
everything else is so delayed. Also, like you have to understand full body, what is going on holistically. And that's so important. And that's really important to talk about with your families because, you know, I've run into kids that, you know, they want me to, you know, well, you're the feeding therapist. Like you should be working on their, you fix this, you fix it. I, I can't fix certain things until they're doing it full body wise. And, and, and until they have the strength, like Mm -hmm. I've so many times, I feel like had conversations feeding is really hard. Eating is is hard for these, especially with infants. Like it is the hardest thing they're going to do all day. And so because they're built for respiration first Mm -hmm. and people forget that they, we take for granted what we can do. Yeah. Take away, have an impact. My goodness. What if these um, seizures are coming out of the brainstem? If the seizures are coming out of the brainstem folks, that's your, those are your critical life functions right there. Cardiac respiration deglutition. Mm -hmm. Which I feel like, looking at all this makes you realize like you have so much more you like makes me sit here and be like, I need to learn so many more things to like be a good therapist. But oh my God, honey, you're doing fantastic work. But it's like, I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Pour another cup of tea. <laughs> okay. All right. Last one. Cause the okay. clock is dinging. We're officially over, but we're going to finish right. up the last one. Okay. Rhett syndrome, baby. Go for Wait, pet peeve. It's not R H E T T. It's R E T T. Also, it I took think- me until like what? Six months ago to realize that I had been spelling it wrong professionally for like uh, my entire career. So yay, Michelle. <laughs> okay. Aaron, your turn, baby. <laughs> okay. So rat syndrome is often you'll find misdiagnosed as autism, CP, or just nonspecific developmental delay. In little girls. Mm-hmm. It is rarely in boys. Yep. Um, and it's in worldwide one of every 10,000 female births. So re- they talk about, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but um, usually when it's a male, it's what they call an MECP2 related disorder. Mm-hmm. So it's not the exact mutation that happens in girls. And it's because it's a sex chromosome-related genetic disorder. I have seen um, MECPIC2 in um, a little boy um, um, once upon a time in my professional career. And I can attest that some of the similarities mm-hmm. are there. Yeah. Um, and Rett syndrome as a whole is a spectrum mm-hmm. from those with severe profound delays to those that are much milder. Mm -hmm. And I wish if I could give one bit of advice to every person listening, if you have a girl on your caseload that has been diagnosed with autism, please send her to a geneticist. Please pick up the phone and request that that child be seen by a geneticist because Increased likelihood that it actually is Rett syndrome. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Um, Super big soap opera. And it's sometimes hard to, I don't know why it's hard sometimes to advocate for, not hard as like, you know, you should do it, but like, 
sometimes that's a harder sell to get to a genetic Yes. Well, I mean, there's, there's familiar fears. They don't want to admit that something's wrong. Then it's the, and then it's also families have them. On the, okay. Was it my fault? You know, when you yeah. get into genetics, uh-huh. that's a, uh-huh. Do I need to be tested? Does ever it, it can involve the whole family? We need to interview a geneticist. That's what we should do. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. okay, so like you said, it can range from mild to severe. The big thing with Rett syndrome is that they appear normal until about six to eighteen months, and for some, they talked about there's like a later developing Rett syndrome also that mm-hmm. kids can develop it even later, and that's because the way that the MECPIC2 mutation, um, it's, it's, it's a protein. Isn't, isn't it's a it like protein, a protein? It's a way the pro- you don't need necessarily use that protein as much when you're in infancy. And then yeah. as they start to get older, it's, um, not wait. Who's the famous, um, there's a CBS news anchorman. My husband and I were actually talking about this the other day. His son has, um, MECPIC too, mm-hmm. and they're actually doing clinical trials and his son's genetic mutation is so rare that, um, uh, they think his actual blood might hold the ability to help synthesize and cure it. And they're doing amazing research up in, of course, I think it's in Boston or someplace really yeah. cool. I will come across that article and we'll add it to, I can't remember. It's probably, in, well, they also talk about interret, I-N-T-E-R, capital R-E-T-T. It's globally collecting data about Rett syndrome. So okay. they're like, um, t- creating a huge database, okay. which is really cool. But with it's, they have a shortage of the protein and then it can't regulate genes a certain way. So then as they get older and they need those genes for more and more things, that's when you start to see it happen. What resource is this? I can't, I don't remember what, um, Rett syndrome.org. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they have I won't be able to go into all of it, but they go into like certain parts of the brain and which parts of the brain are compromised and why they're compromised and things like that, which is really cool. Um, very, very common, um, things to look for. Um, so they have a regression of skills. It it seems Mm -hmm. like, and that's, they look for the most part, pretty typically developing. Mm -hmm. They may have a little bit of a harder time with the latch when they're teeny tiny. Um, and they might have just kind of, not low tone, but mm-hmm. lower tone, but you're right. Something they like happens. appear to lose communication skills and mm-hmm. purposeful use of her hands. Yes. So and that's a really, and like flapping of the hands almost. Yeah. And then we start seeing what we consider stimming mm-hmm. and right there near our eyes. Also cortical vision impairments. Yeah. And slowing of normal head growth is noticed. Mm-hmm. Becoming um, microcephalic. They talk about seizures um, interesting is disorganized breathing patterns when she's awake. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I have seen a lot of these children have obstructive sleep apnea, mm-hmm. but the obstructive sleep apnea may start out as structural, but end up being neurologic, which we don't even think of. There's like a neurologic obstructive sleep mm-hmm. apnea, but it is because of the, um, their increased likelihood for seizure disorders. Yeah. And they appear very irritable and you can't really console them when they're crying like during this period and then we go in and we try to do feeding therapy i have this sweetest little friend who 
It took us eight months. Not a lot. There's a lot of people that have never heard of it before. Yeah, and 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 it's really frustrating because I have a little friend who I love and adore, and just want to put this baby in my pocket. Her pediatrician um, got the diagnosis from an ER physician who called in. Um, the baby coded on the way to the hospital, had a seizure, coded on the way to the hospital. They got to the ER and then um, uh, after they were stabilized and they were in the hospital for a few days, they went ahead and did the genetic workup in the hospital, which is really atypical, mm-hmm. but something major was going on. And after they got the diagnosis, the mom found out a life-altering diagnosis via a phone call. There was an extensive period of time before any services were started. And I walked in and there was overt signs symptoms of absent seizures, the staring seizures. Mm-hmm. And it took an additional eight months to get a diagnosis of seizures before medication started. Eight more months. I am upset and frustrated because that's eight months of neurologic damage mm-hmm. of of. And now that we are on seizure medications, then you have the dam- the difficulty with seizure medications. They can cause, for lack of a better phrase, a snowing effect. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like now you're on a double-edged sword. I'm not the neurologist, and the neurologist has to find the right dose and type of medications to control the seizures. But while we still, happening. but while that while it's happening, but I still need to get a kid to work on their PO skills. So that a way, and you know, a kid who was actually doing really good prior to doubling of the seizure medication. And now, you know, we're drooling at baseline that we weren't doing, but is that due to, I mean, and it's like, well, as the, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think a ton of people like, understand that a seizure is causing damage to your yes, brain. That was not explained to me. I just, I think you, you know, I have a lot of families and they, and you know, they may not know, but it's just, Oh yeah. She just, ha- and for me, I'm like every seizure could have caused more damage, mm-hmm. take a steps back, mm-hmm. cause a change in status. And that's, kind of scary for us because especially when we're doing feeding with a kid that has risks of like sound aspiration and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, as how often do I need a new swallow study? Like, are these, you know, it, it's very, I just don't think that that's as understood me and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. No, you were, is. you were absolutely spot on front, but they definitely, I mean, it's a, it's a scary thing. And you like when you're playing with me- not playing with medication, but when you're trying to figure out, and like you said, all these medications can have all these other issues. Okay. So what's the bottom line today, folks? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry, we were just- no, I'm just thinking, but that's, that's it. The bottom line, these are all, you get a genetic condition and you have to look at what is the prognosis? Mm-hmm. What are the concomitant disorders? And what are the medications to treat those disorders? Mm-hmm. And then how does the how do those concomitant disorders, such as seizure disorders, thyroid issues, um, and how do their treatments impact swallowing? Mm-hmm. So I think the takeaway point would be you guys, y'all, we got to look at the kids holistically. 
we've got to look at these children holistically. Mm -hmm. Step back. A swallow does not happen in isolation. PO refusals do not happen in isolation. Mm -hmm. It's so connected. And and work communication specialists, Mm -hmm. so like listen to what they're telling you. Even if they're not verbally telling it to you. Right. I should have said that. That's okay. But like if, if you go and you work with a kid and then the next week something's off and they're refusing the bottle or just they're acting differently or especially mom or dad, mom says something's off, something's weird. Mm -hmm. Like mom, I had a patient that has a seizure disorder and I went in one day and mom like looked at dad and was like, she's acting weird. And I didn't even notice mom, like something's off the next day she had a seizure. Like, listen, you know, listen to your parents. They know, know. they know your parents, your guardians, siblings. And and instill the confidence in parents to advocate for their kids because there are a lot of them, especially when they've been waiting or when you're in the midst of getting a diagnosis or when they've just gotten a diagnosis. A lot of these parents have been telling doctors for a while that something's wrong and they've been shot down a lot. And so give Mm -hmm. them the confidence that they know when something's wrong because I'm sure they've been told no a bunch of times. And that can be very hard because going to a professional and a professional telling you that, you know, are not being able to tell you what's wrong. Like just give them that confidence. Cause that's important. Yes. We went way over our time, know, but this really was really sad. worth it. Oh my gosh. This, this is one of my preferred ones. Okay. All right. All right. And so use your resources. Look stuff up. Yes. Like, don't just do the Google verify syndrome <laughs> diagnosis. Like you have all these resources now, like that's- NIH, NIHS, rare, rare syndrome.org actually go. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. <laughs> we need, we need a repeat to this one. Okay. All right. Quick announcements. I'd love to meet you live in April. Um, I'm going to be guest lecturing at the Arizona Speech Hearing Association Convention Friday, April 5th, 2019 in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as the following weekend, Friday, April 12th and Saturday, April 13th, 2019 for the Minnesota Speech Hearing Association in Bloomington, Minnesota. So pack a bathing suit and or snowshoes because I don't really know what the weather looks like. I mean, Arizona, I think is hot. Minneapolis, I think is cold, but I could be totally right. And um, I will see y'all in a couple of weeks. So also, if you have any other stuff that we didn't cover, or if you have like an idea of something that you want us to talk about, email, because I mean, we'll go on the topic about anything. Yeah. I mean, because we love this. Um, (laughs) First bite at speechtherapypd.com. Um, Facebook is first bite. Um, Instagram is first bite. Mm-hmm. There's a theme here. First bite. Um, and apparently I'm supposed to say this and it makes me feel very uncomfortable, but, um, we would love your iTunes reviews. Um, so feel free to say they're nerdy and amazing. No, I'm just kidding. Just, you know, you could say that. Though. Subscribe. <laughs> Subscribe, rate, rate, review, subscribe, rate, review, subscribe. Yay! All right, cool. All right. Everybody out there, thank you kindly and um, have a good night. Ooh, or hold tight for questions. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite. 
fed, fun, and functional. I am your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.